For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how some Tucson high school students are working for political change in support of teachers. I'll talk with David Biancooley, a familiar voice from Fresh Air, about his new book on the evolution of television, from I Love Lucy to The Walking Dead. And Beth Surdit pays attention to mountain lions and how sometimes the hunter can become the hunted. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In the wake of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, many people were surprised at the level of effective activism by high school students. Closer to home, student protests about gun control have been less pronounced. But our first story shows how Tucson students are being civically active. While most high school government classes teach the process of how a bill becomes a law, Christopher Conover takes us to a class in Tucson where students are doing more than reading about it. I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. If you grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons in the 1970s and 80s, there's a good chance this is how you first learned how a bill becomes a law. But times have changed. When we left here on Thursday, I had said that HB 2373, sort of the bill that we've been working on and following through the process, was dead because the Appropriations Committee was not going to hear it. Seniors in Steve Painter's government class at Tucson Sky Island High School are getting a first-hand look at how state government works. Instead of reading a book or watching a video about civics, they're lobbying for a bill in the Arizona legislature. Students here are going to be benefiting because they got that knowledge of the governmental process. So I don't think before it started that they knew anything about a majority whip or a majority leader, a minority leader, and what roles they play. The bill being championed by the class would give Arizona teachers money to buy classroom supplies. The bill is sponsored by Tucson Democrat Kirsten Engel, who came to the class before the start of the legislative session. Then the class began writing letters. Student Brennan Llewellyn says some of them even made a trip to the state capitol. We were actually there for Environmental Day, but while we were up there, we also like kind of snuck in and, and mentioned the bills, the education bills we were working on. It was heartwarming, you know, to know, to know that they, they look at us and they care. And, you know, face to face, they're really, they're kind of on our level. Initially, students like Ashley Roberts were not too excited about the assignment. I was very skeptical at first because they get thousands of emails every day. Why would they take the time to read some high schoolers' email? But after hearing that they took it into consideration, I'm pleasantly surprised and I am glad to be proven wrong. Teacher Steve Painter says the students' efforts paid off for the proposal. The students really got behind it when they sent some emails out to members of the Education Committee. And prior to that, they weren't really interested in hearing the Bill and Committee. But then once the emails rolled in, they decided to put it on the agenda. And so they really started getting behind that. More than lobbying, student Carlo Vizino says the class is actually learning about the way a bill becomes a law. 
didn't know any of the steps to do it, and now I know pretty much all of them, and it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. Classmate Brennan Llewellyn agrees. You know, I've never done something like this before, so it was, it was definitely interesting, but I've, I've grown to enjoy it and appreciate it a lot more. The class learned a tough lesson about legislation when the bill got stuck in committee. But then it gained new life when another Tucson lawmaker, Republican Todd Clodfelter, amended it onto another proposal. But that didn't ensure passage. You failed to pass House Bill 2377. That vote on the House floor brought on a new letter-writing campaign. Student Ashley Roberts says this time the goal is to get another vote on the bill. So we are lobbying the main people, the majority leader, the minority leader, and the two co-sponsors to ask them to like help push everyone to be like, hey, reconsider this bill, we want this to be happening, we want to help teachers and stuff. The bill has a chance for one more vote next week. It's not easy to become a law, is it? No. But how I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill. He signed your bill. Now you're a lord. Oh, yeah! For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. You can see a video version of this story on the next edition of Arizona 360, this Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6. David Bianculi is a familiar name and voice to NPR listeners as the TV critic and Friday host of Fresh Air. When I first heard the name of his new book, I didn't think it made that much sense. The Platinum Age of Television, From I Love Lucy to The Walking Dead, How TV Became Terrific. But after I looked at the table of contents, it started to become clear. Bianculi has found a way to write about his favorite subject that is pretty novel. From sitcoms to soap operas to westerns, legal shows, and crime dramas, Bian Cooley looks at each genre in detail by focusing on the five or six shows that he feels demonstrate the most important evolutionary jumps in storytelling. Next, we'll talk about some of his choices, why he thinks they help television evolve, and we'll start, as the book does, at the beginning. Well, it goes back to radio. I didn't even, I was yeah. so stupid. I didn't even just start with TV. <laughs> so, and, and I didn't even realize this until I was recording the audio version of the book. By about 10 chapters in, not radio, don't go back to Gunsmoke on radio, but it all connects. When you look at this medium as evolution, it comes from a previous medium. Let's take one of these genres and look at it a little more closely, and I'm going to select Chapter 11, which is Single Working Women Sitcoms. Under that heading, you highlight five titles for us. The Mary Tyler Moore Show, mm -hmm. The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, Murphy Brown, then Sex and the City, and then Girls. The idea was to say, it was like, you know that drawing with the five stages of man? Yes. Um, well, it was like, okay, what are the five stages in each of these genres? It doesn't mean there were no other evolutional points. And in fact, with the Mary Tyler Moore, before that would be all the way back to our Miss Brooks, and you would go to that girl. And I write about all those things, but then I specifically spend more time with what I consider the most important five. And 
you have the Mary Tyler Moore Show, nobody would argue with that. Uh, Sex in the City, probably nobody would argue with that. And Girls. Uh, Murphy Brown, you know, is just about to come back again. So that makes sense. But Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, that's almost like a missing link. And a lot of people don't even know that show. But I, I found it really important in the history. So the key in evolution here, I think, also is an honesty about gender roles, about women in contemporary America, uh, which over the decades that contemporary frame changes. And we do see a big difference between uh, the way Mary Richards behaved and her portrayal as an adult and girls and the struggles to become an adult. You know, with Mary Richards, it was the first major sitcom in which there was a character whose big driving force was not to get a man or to keep a man. It was to focus on a career and relate to her friends and her co-workers. And that was what most male sitcoms set in a workplace were like. And then after that, you get to programs like Sex and the City and Girls, and they are all about the female relationships with one another while men come and go and drive them crazy. You also coined what was, to me, a new phrase in this with split comms. Yeah, I know. I couldn't come up with anything else. But it's sort of like there are workplace sitcoms where you spend your whole time like at the bar of cheers, or there are situation comedies where there, there are family sitcoms where you spend all the time at home, like Leave it to Beaver. But what about the ones that go half and half? And I finally decided... Uh, let's call those split comms. And for our audience, uh, in the split comms category, David B. and Cooley chooses The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Bob Newhart Show, then Seinfeld and Louie. I think Seinfeld is an interesting choice because as a casual watcher, not a lover of Seinfeld, which has gotten me into many arguments, I'm not fun at cocktail parties, um, that <laughs> That's I didn't... not because of not liking Seinfeld, by the way, <laughs> well, I'm sure. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, I didn't think of Seinfeld as being a sitcom where the workplace environment was really all that important. But then again, Jerry Seinfeld played a stand-up comedian on the show, and you could say that the times when he's standing in front of the brick wall doing his routines is actually a workplace element of that show. And in the early seasons, that was a key structure of that because a lot of Seinfeld in the early years dealt with showing his private life as it built and related to uh, the jokes that he would tell when he was at work. The first stage in the splitcom evolutionary chain that you present is the Andy Griffith show, which is very sly in a way because the workplace elements and Andy's family life were so blended together, it's really hard in that case to tell where one ends and the other begins. That's a great observation. And, and it's true. It's so gentle. And the members of his family came in and out of, you know, his sheriff's office all the time anyway. I think Opie was at his dad's workplace as much as dad was home. But uh, it was a beautiful melding of the two. And just like with the Dick Van Dyke show, when the character came home from the TV show, he had a full, interesting life 
with, you know, Rob Petrie's wife, Laura. But when he went to work, he had an equally interesting life uh, relating to his boss and trying to come up with comedy and dealing with the other comedy writers. So that was two sitcoms in one. Um, and I, I think that's because Carl Reiner, who created the show, was not only writing what he knew, but he was a new TV writer other than your show of shows, which was sketch stuff. So in writing his first sitcom, he didn't know that he was breaking rules by making it that complicated. Tell me about interviewing Carl Reiner for the book. There are so many great performers and writers that you interviewed. Carl Reiner is such an important guy when we talk about TV evolution. You know, there's two parts of the book. There's my silly let's play Darwin kind of evolutionary TV stuff where I'm a critic and and a writer, and that's part of it. The other part was to go through all of TV history and say, who are the people whose work impressed me the most, influenced TV the most, and are still alive for me to talk to? And for the entire history of TV, uh, I, I spoke to about 30 of them. That's my favorite part of the book. And in the earliest part, you get Carl Reiner, you get Mel Brooks, you get Norman Lear, uh, people that were there when television began. And it was just great because all three of those men have astoundingly sharp memories for their age, for any age. I don't remember what they remember in terms of the years that we were both on the planet. So it's pretty amazing. An interesting category is crime shows. Because there are five stages of evolution start with Hill Street Blues. Certainly not the first crime show on TV, but a major, um, a major reassessment and a major reimagining of what a cop show could be. And from Hill Street Blues, you go to NYPD Blue. Then we have The Sopranos. Not as much about cops as you might think, but definitely a crime show. Then The Shield and then Breaking Bad. And that's the one that really surprised me because mm -hmm. I think I would have expected a show like The Wire or something, not Breaking Bad, which once again wasn't really about cops. It was truly about crime. Right. And I do, I do write briefly about The Wire, and I loved The Wire. But that evolutionary spot uh, with crime, it begins with Hill Street Blues because all of crime shows on TV are either before or after Hill Street Blues. Hill Street is the one that brought the serialized soap opera approach to it and killed people off suddenly regularly and and showed its heroes as something less than always heroic and so from there you go to NYPD blue where you you start with a very flawed protagonist in in Sipowitz and he ends up being a better more noble character by the end and then by the sopranos you're not paying attention to the to the order side of you know law and order. You're you're looking at the criminals, and in the shield you have a cop who basically is a criminal, and then Breaking Bad, it's an evolution in itself from a character who begins law abiding and ends up being a ruthless bad guy. Part of that evolution is the acceptance of having a protagonist who is less than noble, and it just keeps on accelerating in each one of those examples. Okay, so a couple more I want to hit real fast before we run out of time. Okay. <laughs> Soap operas is a really interesting one too, David, because here you include a show that I would not think of as a soap opera. I would think of it as a soap opera satire, and that's Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. But here it is, number two, sandwiched in between Peyton Place and Dallas in the evolution of nighttime soap operas. 
Well, it understood soap operas perfectly. And uh, the appeal that Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman had is the exact same appeal that daytime soaps like General Hospital and One Life to Live would have and which Peyton Glace and Dallas tapped into. You know, it had villains, it had heroes, it had continuing stories, it had sudden deaths, it had outrageous romances. You know, uh, it really knew what it was doing and it appealed to people. It, it sort of went viral as a television program, not from a regular network, but an individual syndicated group of stations that just said, we want to show this, we want to show this. And, and it's important for that reason as well. In writing this book, David, what did you have to stop yourself from doing? What rabbit holes did you have to keep yourself from going down in order to get the book finished? My editor said, stop talking to people because <laughs> every interview that I got made it easier to get the next interview. It's sort of like once you say, well, I talked to Mel Brooks, I talked to Larry David, I talked to, you know, Stephen Bochco. They say, well, okay, then, then you know. But I hope that what's there is enough of an argument and, and interesting enough to sort of make the point that television right now is better than ever. I'm not in a Clint Eastwood kind of get off my lawn, everything was better in black and white days. I've been a TV critic forever, but it's better now than it ever has been. David Biancooley's website is called tvworthwatching.com. Amy Schumer, Tom Smothers, and Gary Shandling are among the other interviews found in his book, The Platinum Age of Television, From I Love Lucy to The Walking Dead, How TV Became Terrific, from Anchor Books. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can find a much longer version on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org, plus information about David Biancooley's visit to Tucson. On March 7th and 8th, he'll be a guest of the local chapter of the Brandeis National Committee's 22nd Annual Book and Author Event, a fundraiser to support research into neurological disorders. Earlier this week, Arizona Game and Fish released a local man's night vision camera video of a mountain lion on a stroll near Sabino Canyon. So next, author and artist Beth Surtit, who listens to ravens and has paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places, explores the world of this iconic Arizona predator. When someone tells me that they have seen a mountain lion in the wild, or even that there might be one around, this free zone of excitement sparkles through me. Stories come to me from all sorts of people and places. My landlord, Pete Jorgensen, came over to work on my clogged kitchen sink. Passing by my work table, where I was finishing a drawing of a mountain lion, he told me about being in the Rincon Mountains 10 or 12 years ago, collecting leopard frog data with friends. They were walking by a pond when a mountain lion jumped out of some reeds on the far side and ran away. Pete was the last person in line, hanging back, 
because he wanted to see what was in those reeds. He waded across the pond, maybe thirty feet, thinking there might be a kill or a den. He parted the reeds, and there was a second lion laying down with its back to him. He was so close he could have touched it. I thought she was asleep. She turned her body and looked at me. The hair on my arms stood up. She had beautiful eyes, he said, and I could hear the wonder in his voice. He backed away slowly and kept going. The hair on my arms was standing up, too, and just for a second I was with him and the mountain lion, holding my breath. Lucky you, I said to him, to experience that. Yes, yes, I was, he said. So I named the drawing, You Should Be So Lucky. Cougar, puma, panther, and mountain lion are common names for the puma concolor, the largest cat that can purr, meow, caterwaul, and yowl, but not roar. A typical adult male, six to eight feet from nose to tail tip, weighs 110 to 180 pounds. Females, five to seven feet, 80 to 130 pounds. Mountain lions can run up to 45 miles per hour for short distances, leap 30 feet or more horizontally, 18 feet straight up, and 60 feet down. They are beautiful, powerful, mysterious, and often misunderstood. Estimated numbers in Arizona are 2,500 to 3,000, with home ranges of 75 to 150 square miles, and those numbers vary depending on which study you read. The cats are hard to count. University of Arizona professor Melanie Culver is a conservation geneticist who knows her scat. She has been studying mountain lion genetics in North and South America since 1990. In a recent conversation, she said, there have been a lot of mountain lions in Arizona, but I don't know that it is always going to be so. They are the last large predator that have this very important role. That role is that of wildlife managers. Extirpate them, you tip the balance, creating what's called a trophic cascade. For example, without the presence of mountain lions and wolves, deer populations soar beyond healthy numbers. While there have been 25 reported human deaths by mountain lions since 1890, a thousand people die every year in deer collisions with automobiles. In 1970, Arizona was the last state to stop offering bounties for killing cougars. It is still legal to hunt big cats in this state, but there is a petition currently circulated by Arizonans for Wildlife that has the goal of putting a measure on the November 2018 ballot that would prohibit trophy hunting, including hounding and trapping, of mountain lions, bobcats, jaguars, ocelots, and lynx. In January 1994, on a cold, clear morning, the kind that bites your nose, my Tucson friend Vicki Nordness and her two large dogs, a 100-pound Malamute and a 75-pound Husky Mutt, walked out of her house in the Metow Valley in the North Cascade Mountain Range in Washington State. They hadn't gone far when they heard hounds baying, their anxious voices bouncing around the valley. The snow was so deep that Vicki went back home to put on her snowshoes. 
starting out at 2,100 feet above the valley floor. She followed the sound up another 500 feet, where she found chaos. Six radio-collared hunting dogs had treed something. The pack was baying and lunging. Two hounds were fighting with each other, wrestling and rolling down the hill towards Vicky and her dogs, who had stopped about 100 feet away. The hounds tried to engage her dogs, so she barked at the hounds to sit, which sent them running back to the tree. Then she waited. A man and a boy appeared with guns and no snowshoes. They post-holed slowly through the deep snow, their legs disappearing with each step. Vicky, 40 years old, slight of build and strong of spirit, guessed the man to be about her age, the boy about 18. After introducing herself, Vicky told them, Whatever you have in that tree, I don't want you to kill it. Is it a cougar? The man said, I hope so. We've been chasing a cougar and her young all morning on our snowmobiles. Vicky asked, Couldn't you just take a picture? The boy said, I want to stuff it and put it in my living room. I've been waiting five years to get this permit. Let's just respect our differences. An older man, walking more slowly than the others, approached them. He was the grandfather. What's this worth to you guys? Vicky asked. What do you mean? said the father. I'll pay you not to kill it. How about $500? The grandfather said, Okay, okay, we'll just take pictures. And he took out a little movie camera. They all walked up to the ponderosa pine where the hounds had been baying the whole time. There was the cougar, about 15 feet off the ground. As the men finally walked away, Vicky realized that she could walk up the slope to be 15 feet away from the tree and at eye level with the cougar. One of the men turned and yelled that she wasn't safe unless her dogs were baying. Her dogs never looked at the cat. They focused on the men. So there she sat with the cougar, in the beautiful silence of the ponderosa pine forest, her dogs by her side. She returned the next morning and found the cougar's tracks where it had walked away from the tree, from the hounds, from the men with guns, and from my friend, who told me that seeing a cougar in the wild was the thrill of a lifetime. Until the end of March, an exhibition of wildlife drawings and true nature stories by Beth Serdet are on view at the Kirk Bear Canyon Library on East Tinker Verde Road. You can learn about citizen science, explore ways to deepen your relationship with nature, and share your stories when Beth Serdet and friends from the National Phenology Network host a presentation on the art of paying attention this Sunday, March 4th, from 2 to 4 p.m. For information, look for Beth's drawing of the mountain lion on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. 
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.